Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Before we get started, if you haven't already, take this moment and subscribe to this pod. You will not regret it, trust me. On today's episode, we are talking with Avital Chijik Goldschmidt, esteemed New York writer and journalist. If you've read any article about the experience of the Orthodox Jewish community, whether it was in a Jewish magazine or secular media, it's likely you've read Avital's work. Avital is giving voice to the Orthodox Jewish community in a time when the only stories being told are largely pejorative. She values the power of words, and she uses that strength to give representation to Orthodox Jews in the media. Going into this conversation with Avital, there is so much I want to learn. What does popular media get wrong about orthodoxy? How do we fix the schism within the Jewish community between religious and secular life? How do we encourage the Jewish community in America to tell their stories? I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Avital Chijek Goldschmidt is a writer living in New York City. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Vox, Vogue, Salon, Glamour, Business Insider, and Religion and Politics, among so many others. Previously, she was the life editor at The Forward and a reporter for Haaretz. She was a recipient of honors from The Atlantic, Moment, the National Foundation for Advancement of the Arts, and elsewhere. Avital does pastoral work alongside her husband, Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt, in Manhattan's Upper East Side. Avital, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Julia, for having me. Amazing. So like usual, let's get right into it. Can you begin by telling us a bit about where you're from? Sure. I grew up in a very exotic place called suburban New Jersey, (laughs) (laughs) but my parents are actually from the Soviet Union. So I grew Uh. up speaking Russian at home. Um, I grew up in a very classically immigrant Russian Jewish home uh, where culture was a very big part of my upbringing. Um, even though we were living in, you know, a pretty classic modern Orthodox, Orthodox suburb in New Jersey, we had this very sort of very strong connection with, um, you know, with sort of cult- Russian culture, uh, whether it was literature, whether it was music, um, you know, film, all the things that sort of make up what it means to be a quote-unquote Soviet Jew. Mm-hmm. Was that particular experience, especially given the experience of Soviet Jewry, um, something that motivated you to get involved in the Jewish community here in the United States? For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, it really enha- enhanced and I think uh, inspired me to take my Judaism very seriously. Uh, before we even get to community, but just sort of the individual uh, religious and spiritual experience, my Judaism was very important to me from from a very young age because I grew up with a very acute understanding of the costs of what it meant to be Jewish in the Soviet Union and what my parents and what my grandparents had really sacrificed in order to allow us to really be uh, proud and observant and educated Jews. So, uh, so that was sort of the first step, I think, for me, uh, growing up as a child and as a teenager, um, I became sort of more, uh, religiously observant over the years. And a lot of it was actually my sort of 
weirdly, my Soviet upbringing that pushed me in that direction. Um, and then, yeah, and then as in high school and college, I was always a very involved student. I was always sort of, you know, the yearbook editor and running this club and that club. Um, I, I love people. I love uh, doing. I love getting involved. I love sort of whether it is something cultural, whether it is political on Israel, um, whether it is journalistic, of course, there were, there were so many ways that, um, you know, I tried to find myself and tried to get involved in. So, um, definitely it was a big part of, I think the Russianness, and specifically like my grandparents were, um, in the Soviet Union were both, uh, sort of these intellectuals. One, my grandmother taught Russian literature and my grandfather taught art history and, they were always running sorts of like student clubs and trips for students. They were very engaged educators. Uh, and it's kind of funny because we definitely see community very differently in the United States. And this is a very communist definition of community for them. But that sort of that love of getting involved, of teaching and of gathering people was sort of was very much something inherited. And I think that's incredible and really interesting because you have continued that legacy in your work. You've done a lot of amazing things, one of which has been um, teaching at Yeshiva University's Stern College for Women. And so here you're in this environment where you're giving women access to knowledge on religion in a way that we haven't always been able to access it before. Do you see that as the continuation of your grandparents' legacy? I've never thought about it that way, um, but certainly, I mean, I was always raised with this reverence for pedagogy. Um, you know, my grandmother would always say that to be a good teacher, one needs to know how to be an actress. One needs to know how to stand on stage in front of a classroom, how to improvise, right? How to command attention. And I, that's not actually my nature at all. I'm not a stage type of person. Um, mm -hmm. I think people often expect that of me because I could maybe fire off a saucy tweet or write a fiery <laughs> op-ed, but that doesn't mean that I'm sort of like that type of person. I'm, I'm like a little nerdy writer in my corner. Um, but yeah, I think certainly there's, there was reverence of pedagogy. Um, and specifically I was actually teaching journalism at Stern. So um, that was particularly meaningful because I'm a very big believer that we as a Jewish community should be, uh, you know, really, educating and empowering the next generation to consider journalism as a real, um, you know, a real professional trajectory, which is really hard to do. I think journalism is, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of doom saying about journalism these days, but it's kind of always been that way, I think. Um, but even when I went to Stern, um, which is going to be around 10 years ago now, I was, you know, in my journalism classes, I, I, don't even, there were very, very few women, I'll put it that way, who ended up pursuing journalism professionally after school, even though some of them were actually majoring in it. Um, very few people really consider it as an option. Um, so part of what I hoped and tried to do as a professor is really to encourage young women to consider this, uh, you know, especially women, especially Orthodox women, we need them in Jewish media. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, a lot of what you've done is taking 
your own voice and the voices of other women and put it into a place where others can, can, can listen to it. You've given women access to journalism as a medium to hear their stories and to share their stories. Um, and you've done that in both the Jewish and the non-Jewish media. So you've, you've been involved with, with Jewish publications and you've been involved with non-Jewish publications. Why do you see the value of having the Orthodox Jewish voice in, in media? What does that do to change the landscape that we're, we're in right now? Sure. Yeah, I actually spend a lot of my time sort of, you know, my private time is, I spend many hours trying to help other Orthodox Jews and most of the time women in writing op-eds and pitching them and getting them contacts and trying to push them and encourage them to get their voices out there. Why is it important? I mean, it's a, why is representation important? This is part of representation. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we talk about any sort of minority group, we always sort of demands a certain level of representation from that group, uh, you know, in, in an industry, let's say, of that group. And I think the same is true of the Orthodox community. Um, mm-hmm. I, over the years, I've certainly seen how underrepresented we are as a community in many sort of secular Jewish spaces. I'm not even talking about non-Jewish sort of mainstream spaces, but even in secular Jewish spaces, I was very frequently the only Orthodox Jew in the room. Um, and that's both in media and in Jewish nonprofits and, you know, in many conferences or whatnot. And I was always sort of deemed as this strange creature, but it's so important in building those bridges and building relationships with, you know, between communities. And um, it, it's not a question that, especially, you know, with the rise of anti-Semitism, with Orthodox Jews, very often targets of that anti-Semitism. I really believe that, you know, just because of the fact that we are very visible on the street, we are often at sort of the front lines um, of this war. And the fe- given that reality, we need to be hearing more from Orthodox Jews in sort of in, in mainstream media. Absolutely. And part of what you've written about more recently has been the representation and lack thereof that the Orthodox community has, especially Orthodox Jewish women. Um, now a really pertinent example of that is My Unorthodox Life, which is kind of showing how these stories that are being told are only one type of story. How do you see representation evolving, um, moving forward into the future? How do you hope to see it continue to evolve for, for Orthodox Jewish women? So it's a big challenge that we're facing, let's be honest. And the mm-hmm. challenge is the following, and I actually posted about this on Instagram recently, and it got a very big response. Um, I think that certainly that sort of representation is not um, in any way reflective of, I would say, the vast majority of experiences in the community. That doesn't mean it's not interesting. Obviously, it was interesting. It got a deal, right? But we as a community also need to think about what stories we are telling um, and, and, and what channels we're using to sort of get attention for those stories. And when I say that, I mean, many times we sort of, I, I hear a lot of people in the community sort of saying, well, why are the happy stories never told about our community? Well, happy stories aren't told because they're often not stories, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just, that's actually just storytelling. That's like a basic psychology, right? I don't think it's, uh, directed at any specific group, right? I, I don't think it's a sort of a discrimination even. It's just the reality that a good story requires a conflict. And when you're telling a story 
in which everything is perfect and we love to keep Shabbos, that's not a good story. <laughs> um, so I think we need to really think deeply about that. And that is that we as a community are either are constantly oscillate between two narratives that are told about us. Number one is the escape narrative. Our stories are told only by those who leave. And that is problematic on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, the stories that are told are all propaganda. Our apologists sort of selling a very specific story um, that really isn't a story, right? So the reality is, I think we need, we as a community need to really invest in, in a creative sector, right? We're not good at doing that as a community. We just aren't. And there are various reasons for that. I think largely they're economic. But then at the end of the day, we don't really have serious Orthodox art. We don't have serious Orthodox fiction or poetry or film, right? I think we have, not, not I think, I know we have the talent. I know we have brilliant Orthodox Jews who are creatives and who, who think in that way. But I think many of them feel not empowered one way or another, um, whether in terms of resources, whether in terms of just having the freedom and the bandwidth to be able to talk about their experiences in the community openly. Um, and I say that as an Orthodox journalist, right? I've certainly gone through my share of pushback for some of the work that I've done for much of the writing I've done over the years. Um, you know, I, I pushed through, but certainly not easy. And if you're someone who is not ready for that pushback, that's going to be inevitable. Um, so, so I think that's really sort of the, the solution that lies ahead. I've actually had a bunch of calls with different organizations. Everyone is sort of throwing their hands up over Netflix and who's the biggest Shanda and what are we going to do about it? And I was sort of saying like, you know, pe people were asking me, let's say we have funding. What do we do with the funding? How do we sort of mm -hmm. deal with this issue? Quote unquote. And I said, just like start, start a filmmaker's grant. Like start a fund, ask people to apply, Orthodox Jew, mm -hmm. young Jews to, who want to make films about their lives, like help them find funding for that, help them do that, help them tell their stories. Um, and, I, and I say this based on years of experience of working and interacting with secular media, where frankly, I have seen plenty of interest in honest Orthodox stories. Um, Sure, there will be challenges, but in the end of the day, if you're honest, people are interested in hearing, right? So I, th I think that's, in a nutshell, that's the solution. Absolutely. And do you think that that's a phenomenon that exists throughout the Jewish world or particularly in the Jewish American community? So, for example, in Israel, where Jewish culture is kind of the baseline, do you think that there is more facilitating of creative Orthodox community art that that's that's coming out absolutely it's a really important distinction to make this is an american problem this is not an israeli problem in the least um in israel you have you have funding you have schools you have programs for young people to study you know these these air, these genres and and we're seeing that right just in the film industry alone but you see that in art in the visual arts you see that in music you see this in in literature increasingly, in journalism even, you're seeing a lot of Orthodox Jews really sort of um, finding ways of telling their stories, again, openly and honestly, but um, in really compelling ways that get a lot of attention from the secular world. Um, the differences are, frankly, that <laughs> to be, I think, an Orthodox Jew in the United States is extremely expensive. 
and people feel very financially squeezed. So, you know, good luck if you want to, if you're a young man and you want to go into filmmaking, good luck finding a wife on that budget, right? Um, it, literally, some small things like that really do affect, um, and there's a lot of social pressure, right, to pursue a certain career or not to pursue a certain career. I, my choice of journalism is very sort of unorthodox, I would say, for the most part. Um, you know, I interviewed a, a, an orthodox artist the other day, and she was telling me that a lot of why she is able to do her art is because she's actually female. And if she were a man, she would never have had the opportunity, um, just financially speaking, to really sort of pursue her passion. It's really interesting. Yeah, and Israel is a different system. Um, you know, you're not paying five yeshiva tuitions every year. It's, you know, there are different expectations. And every time I meet Orthodox artists and creatives in Israel, I'm always amazed that people really have that capacity to, to, to devote their lives really to their passions. I think one thing we take very much for granted is something as simple as not having work on Saturday or on Friday night is really hard in secular fields for lots of Jewish people who observe Shabbat. Um, and that's something that, I mean, we had spoken previously on this show with the, an Orthodox Jewish woman who was a filmmaker and said that was a huge obstacle for her. Just not filming on Saturday is really hard when she's filming with other filmmakers who, who aren't Jewish. Um, and taking that, I think, for granted as someone who's more secular is a big piece of, of why there's often limitation. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Shabbos is complicated. Um, then you have these sort of smaller social limitations um, that exist that are really, they are hard to overcome. You know, if there's like, let's say you can sort of arrange filmmaking, uh, screening, uh, shooting uh, on days that are convenient, but that are not on Shabbat. But let's say, you know, just social events where people really network, right? That's really sort of, um, you know, I would say difficult to sort of to, to do around Jewish calendar and Shabbos and the holidays. Um, you know, kosher obviously can be complicated sometimes. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a young mom. So for me, one of the, my big challenges in media has certainly been just sort of trying to do all, all of it, you know, trying to be there for a late afternoon meeting when I really have to run back to my kids. Um, and that obviously all mothers face, but in a community where we tend to have children much earlier in, in our lives and in our careers, it's actually much more complicated. What do you think is some of the pushback or struggle that you've experienced in the Jewish sector as an Orthodox Jew and in the, the non-Jewish sector as a Jewish person and a Jewish woman in general? So I've definitely faced from both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're both kind of predictable and that mm -hmm. from the Orthodox community, there's a lot of discomfort with um, with a woman who is visible and vocal and has her own opinions that don't necessarily jive with a certain establishment line. Um, I think, you know, some of it is sort of that type of misogyny. There's just like this inarticulate subconscious discomfort with that. Um, I think yeah. that's changing because of social media. So I, I, I don't complain about this too much, but, but it certainly exists. Um, and do you have some examples of how that's shifted over the past couple of years? Yeah, well, I think they're just, because of social media, 
Orthodox women have built platforms for themselves um, where they're, you know, they've basically allowed themselves to speak up about issues that they care about. Um, I actually wrote about this for religion and politics earlier this year. You know, this, uh, there's been a social media campaign for a gunot, right, for women yes. who are chained to religious marriages. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is, I find it very interesting because a lot of the women who are sort of leading this sort of movement are actually like influencers who were not particularly activists um, on this front. Like there were plenty of women who were activists on this front, but then you had these young women who were, you know, selling lipsticks and out, you know, posting their outfits of the day. And then suddenly they're really taking on this cause in the community, which yeah. I think is amazing and shows mm-hmm. you really sort of how grassroots has become. So you're seeing a big shift, I think, in that, I think a lot of individuals, and then it's not just women, it's men and women. It's a new generation of Orthodox Jews who feel very sort of empowered that they can build their own platforms online that don't go through, um, you know, traditional establishment media. So, um, so I think that's changing a lot and it's become much more comfortable in a certain way to be that, you know, to be in this role. Um, the other thing that I often get in the community is sort of this constant, you know, line of why are you airing our dirty laundry? Why don't you deal with it inside? Why don't you talk about it inside the community? Well, first of all, if there were somewhere to talk about it inside the community, I would have, but there actually isn't anywhere inside the community to talk about it. That's the number one problem. There is no real, there is no free media in the community, right? Where you could really take on an issue like a note or like abuse or whatever it is. Um, And secondly, it always sort of amazes me that people sort of take this approach which is you know don't don't air dirty laundry and my response is always like why are you coming to me you should be going to the person who dirtied that laundry in the first place right just because i'm i'm just a laundromat you know (laughs) i I didn't stain it um so that those are the sorts of the two pushbacks um types of pushback that i get um one is sort of gendered i think and the second is sort of more general um, discomfort with with talking about issues and and not just talking about issues by the way but reporting reporting is what makes people most uncomfortable if you sort of put out an op-ed you know this is a problem in our community we have to fix it you know people get upset about it they don't get upset about it it blows over but when you report when you lift a mirror and you show a certain reality that's when things get uncomfortable i think even more so that's inside the community um outside the community the sort of the general attitude is always like you know you're a fake feminist you are you know an orthodox woman you are oppressed you you know you follow certain rules how long are you going to keep up with this like i've literally had people say to me at media events at conferences comments like that you know um i can't believe you're still religious aren't you smart things like that so that's sort of just general kind of prejudice. Um, and my way of dealing with it is just to, you know, prove them wrong and, you know, yeah. sort of demand a certain level of respect, uh, despite that, but it's not easy. Um, and we'll see. I, I'm, I'm optimistic on both fronts, both on the pushback and the orthodox and the pushback outside. Like, I think these change, these things shift and people are kind of waking up.
And you're doing that is paving the way for a new generation of Orthodox women to be growing up in a world where they have more opportunities than they ever had before. Um, and I think a big piece of that is you have both of those experiences. You write for both Jewish and non-Jewish publications. Is the experience of creating media for a Jewish publication different than creating media for a non-Jewish publication? Do you feel like you speak a common language with Jewish publications that you don't necessarily have with a secular media? Or do you think that they're more similar than we'd expect? It's an interesting question. I actually think they're very similar. I don't think they're very different. Um, Secular Jewish media sort of assumes a reader that is quite that secular. Um, So we, um, you know, we... I would say that the vast majority of non-Jewish media is very Jewish, honestly. (laughs) I'm in New York, so people are, editors are kind of very easily interested in, and even if they're not in New York, they're very easily interested in Jewish stories. Um, So, and actually sometimes the stories were, that I've sold to sort of mainstream media got more interest from a non-Jewish publication than a secular Jewish publication. So it's sort of random. I, you know, I don't, I don't think they're very different. I think the only, the only, the, they're very similar in a certain way in that they don't necessarily understand many of the nuances of the niche of the beat that I'm covering the Orthodox community. Um, but I don't blame them for that. They're just, you know, they don't, they're not inside. So it's hard for them to really understand it, but I find that they're pretty understanding pretty quickly. Absolutely. And then you, on another level now are also working and doing pastoral work with your husband, who's a rabbi, um, and spending a lot of time having conversations over important Jewish texts. Do you feel like this continued legacy of conversation, of of delving deep and and, and writing and thinking and and challenging is is kind of a central part of who you are and a central part of your work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it takes on many different forms um my my in my journalism and you know my 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 literary work my reading and my writing and then my sort of whatever pastoral work i do as a redison certainly there's a lot of overlap um one informs the other you know sometimes i'm actually preparing a torah class that i'm giving in in a week or two on on prayer on a little rosh hashanah related and i'm actually going to open my class with a, a quote from an article from an essay I once wrote for Vox about prayer um, and sort of diving into a specific idea that I mentioned there. Um, you know, I try to sort of combine the two. And of course my work, I think in my communal capacity informs my work as a journalist and that um, I would say not as highbrow as the sort of, uh, life of the mind and the pen, but really much more on the street level, talking to people, uh, spending a lot of time talking to people, basically. And obviously that is like very off the record. Um, but I get people from, I would say, more and more communities across the country, you know, Orthodox communities, members, usually women, reaching out to talk about an issue that they have just because they sort of feel like comfortable because they feel like Mm -hmm. oh she's you know she's a journalist and i read her work and she's kind of more open-minded and she's a rabbi's wife so i can speak to her about this and i've always been shocked like i'm not your rebbitzin like i don't live where you live Mm -hmm. but 
people sort of are, I think, looking for that, um, especially sort of this new generation. Um, so that has definitely informed my work as well, because I just spent so much time talking to people and hearing their stories and people write to me a lot, you know, about their experiences. And it's certainly shaped my views on where the community is now, where we're going, the differences between various communities. Um, it's a very interesting sort of dual life. So you're, you're hearing from these women and they're telling you about their experiences. What sort of questions are they reaching out to you with? What sort of guidance are they looking for? So sometimes it's like religious guidance. It's literally how do I deal with a very personal problem? Um, you know, in, in their lives. And I feel bad sharing more, but, but sort of people really open up. Um, and a lot of it is because they feel it's this weird thing about being a writer. People feel like they know you because they've been reading your work for years. So, um, you know, people have reached out many times to speak to me or to speak to my husband. They're like, can I speak to your husband? Because I need a rabbi who will understand me. And I just feel like based on your writing, he might understand me. Um, so sometimes it's very personal and you just need help with the situation. Um, and situations are sometimes very sort of serious, um, Mm -hmm. which is why they're sort of going so far as to reach out to a stranger. Um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes they are questions that are sort of more journalistic in that I actually just spent an hour today on a zoom call with one woman, um, you know, People reach out with story ideas. People reach out with things that they see, things that they're frustrated about, things that they're sort of asking about, wondering about, and wondering maybe there's a story here. Maybe I should look into it. Um, so I spend a lot of time talking to people, sort of like they're, they're sort of tips, sort of leads for stories. But, um, you know, because we're, we're such a tightly knit community, so... I don't really see them as quote unquote sources. They like become my friends, you know, I get to know them pretty well. So um, it could take many different forms. It's all incredible. And that really does bring us now to the last question, which is really the purpose of this entire podcast. We want women to feel like they have access, like you're saying, to mentors and people they probably are never going to meet in fields that they might be interested in going into with similar backgrounds to them or totally different backgrounds to them to have access to information and knowledge. Um, And with that in mind, what is one piece of advice that you'd want to give to particularly women, particularly young women, but really anyone listening to this podcast right now on how to navigate the world as a Jewish woman within your experience? It's a big question. Um, I I don't know if this is going to sound trite, but it is true. (laughs) I think that often young people, especially young women, and especially young Jewish religious women are often sort of um, encouraged to compromise on certain sort of dreams. Uh, And for me, that was my dream of being a writer and being a journalist. I was sort of, I was always a writer. I was, it was literally from a very young age, I had made it clear that this is what I wanted to do. And this was my this was my strength, you know, and this was something that I really invested my whole heart and soul into. And there was a sort of, you know, um, kind of communal social attitude that like, okay, so you're going to end up teaching English or you're going to end up being a lawyer. 
um, no, I really wanted to be a writer, you know, and of course it's not easy. And of course there have been many, many challenges. Um, but I really, I'm so grateful that I've been able to really stick to my guns and continue this and, and really focus on this strength of mine. Um, and I, and I wish that more young people, more young women, more young religious women were sort of really encouraged to pursue their passions. Um, I have had so many friends over the years who sort of just like, you know, let go of their dreams because reality kind of set in, even though they were incredibly smart and incredibly talented. You know, I have so many friends who really got perfect SAT scores and, and literally could have cured cancer, you know, like that level of brilliance. And, you know, many of them have settled uh, for careers or trajectories that were not even really what they wanted to do, but that was just sort of practical. And I really wish that that they had more support um, to really pursue their passions. So if there's anything, I really, really encourage um, young women to 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 not let go of that dream and to continue pursuing it. And again, it sounds trite, but it's something so fundamental because that's. You're, you know, so much of our fulfillment in life comes from feeling like we have a purpose in life, right? Like we, you know, in, 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 uh, in the book of numbers, it opens with this, uh, this image of you know, the tribes of Israel are encamped in the desert and they each, every tribe has its own flag, right? Every person has their own flag and we all have to figure out what that flag is and to let go of that flag just because you know it's not convenient or it's because it's not practical right now at the moment is is sad and and we need to really find that purpose in life and, and not let go of it so i see it as like even it's more than professional it's loftier than that it's spiritual it's literally like we each have that tough key that role and um i just hope that young women don't let go of it avital it's been such an incredible pleasure and honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for opening up and sharing your story. And I, I appreciate it so much. So my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It was such an honor to sit down with Avital today. She's such a well-respected figure in the Jewish community for good reason. Her work is incredible. I'm so moved by the power that she gives to the simple act of storytelling. Storytelling is something that we've addressed conceptually quite a bit in this podcast so far. So many of the women that we're speaking with are transforming the community through stories. And I think that there's so much gravity in that. For so long, women have been left out of the history we tell. Our contributions have been erased. Our stories haven't been told. Avital is part of this massive shift. Not only are women demanding to be included in the stories we tell, as more than just side characters. But women are telling those stories themselves, especially as it pertains to religious women. They are shattering misconceptions from within and without the Jewish community. For Avital, she is drawing from this rich history where stories have been used as both a tool and a weapon, coming from a long line of teachers with the memory of persecution under the Soviet regime still fresh. Today, she continues that legacy of resistance. Avital Chijek Goldschmidt is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. She is redefining the narrative around Jewish women through her words. 
And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other Nice Jewish Girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcast at jewishunpacked.com. And don't forget to join us next week when we'll be speaking with Alana Silber, Executive Director of Sharsheret, a national organization supporting Jewish women and families facing breast and ovarian cancer. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other pods. Check them out and let me know what you think. And of course, do not forget to follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.